and welcome to this, the 19th episode in the second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And as ever, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we tell you that we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We have in Indeed, promise that we'll never ever charge for these podcasts because I'm a terrible, terrible businessman who didn't spot the opportunity. Um, but you know, we like you to then go and put your money where your mouth is and put your money back into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And as we tell you each week, the most direct, simple, and easy way to do that is just to go and buy yourself some theatre tickets, whether that's top price tickets to one of the big houses like the Abbey or the Gate, um, or maybe there's there's more affordable tickets knocking around at one fringe venue somewhere here and there, or just get out and support it. That's the whole deal. Keep this machine ticking over. Get out there and support Irish theatre. Maybe, you know, tickets might be outside your reach this week or this month, and if that's the case, maybe check out one of the crowdsourcing websites, the fundit.ies, the Indiegogos of the world. There's often theatre projects over there looking for your support. They often have donations starting from as low as €5, and there are usually great rewards in return for your donation. But as we tell you each week also, there's a lot of ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person, over a cup of coffee, or over a pint, or as you're handing off the kids to the child mind, or whatever it is you're doing this day, maybe you could spread the word about the podcast. Uh, you can share it as a post on Facebook. You can retweet the link on Twitter. That's always a good help in terms of us getting out there on social media. And um, Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. Um, but for those of you who aren't using Apple and iTunes and all that, the Podcasts are, of course, streamable and available for direct download over on riseproductions.ie. Do go back and listen to all the other episodes, both in this second series and indeed the first series. Leave us a review on iTunes if you can, or even just click to rate us on their five-star rating system over there. That's of massive benefit for, for us in terms of chart position and uh, and getting discovered by new people. It's a massive, massive help for us if you can do that. And of course, as always, you can follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash riseproductions. Productions Ireland, and you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise. Ireland. And so it's been another busy week here at Rise Towers. We are flat out in the rehearsal room getting ready to bring you this uh, this new remount of the tour of The Good Father. And it's coming together beautifully. I'm really enjoying being in the room with Marie and with Dan. Um, we've given ourselves more time to rehearse it this time around than we even did to build the show in the first place. It's an entirely new cast and it's effectively an entirely new show. The guys are fantastic and are bringing a whole new energy to it. I'm doing my very best not to try and impose things we found last time around on it. It's the whole point of doing this again is to come and rediscover it, find it afresh. Uh, and what I'm really enjoying about it is that it's revealing a whole new side to Christian's incredible play for me. We're finding new stuff every day. And the idea that I can still be surprised by this play, uh, knowing it inside out at this stage like I do, um, feels fantastic. I'm really, really enjoying being back in the room. and I can't wait to come and share it with you guys. We're hitting 14 venues nationwide, north, south, east, east, west, all four provinces, north and south of the border. Wherever you are on the island of Ireland, we are coming to you. So don't worry. And we would love to see you out there on the road. I think it's going to be a pretty special show. 
And so that brings us to our guest this week. And this one is a very special one for me because it is the brilliant Michael Scott. Now, Michael Scott is the man who broke me into the business all those years ago when I was just a 15-year-old kid. Phyllis Ryan, who was working on him on the Cuhullin show, the, the, the Cuhullin cycle, the, the five Cuhullin plays from Yates, said, if you're looking for the guy to play the young man, why don't you roll the dice on young Angus McAnally? Michael did, brought me into audition. Thankfully, I landed the gig, and from there, it all kicked off. He is a man who I am so eternally grateful to and kind of eternally indebted to for giving me my first roll of the dice and, and starting me out on this road. He's a man who's done so much over such an incredible period of time for a guy who's only his age. To have north of 50 years experience in the business is something really quite remarkable. But listen, you don't need me to tell you his story. Let's hear it from the man himself. Here he is, the brilliant Michael Scott. The wonderful Michael Scott. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am delighted and over the moon to have you here. Thanks for asking. Um... Let us start then from the very beginning. As a man who likes to hear stories of theatrical families and growing up in theatrical houses, tell me about how early memories of theatre start for you. Uh, when I was three. That's I was pretty taken, early. <laughs> I was taken to Iolanthe in the Gaiety and subsequently for the rest of the next three or four years forced all of my cousins to stage it with me in the living room for the rest of the family from behind the sofa. Wow. Yeah. Um, it had an indelible... And weirdly enough, we were in the Gaiety last year and I was in one of the dressing rooms, and the very programme for the very show was on the wall. Really? And I thought that was good. I took a photo and went, God, there you go now. Wow, that's full circle. Um, so talk to me about... And that would have been 1959. Talk to me about growing up in that house and what it was like. What was the feeling what was the, the, or the attitude towards theatre? How, how well, I suppose was it? it was... Um, my father and mother had met at the O'Connell's Musical Society, and my mother had been apparently good enough to be asked by several of the producers who used to come in and do shows in the Gaiety and the music societies, would she go to London? And she decided she wouldn't. Um, and my father had uh, taken over his own father's electrical business, which was really hard work. They were one of the first two or three electrical companies in the country. And work was kind of hard. And his brother, Charlie, who eventually ended up as a producer in Rottier, uh, was working in the Abbey and didn't have Irish. So Leslie did, and they asked him, would he go into the Abbey to do the pantos? So Leslie did. And um, from then on, he kind of slowly, the electrical business got wound down and he moved from the Abbey to the gate because they paid him more. Now, it was you're talking about between, you know, this was between something like five or seven pounds a week at okay. that stage. That was a very long time ago. Um, and then after a while, he um, moved from the gate back to the Abbey, where he stayed for like 45 years until he retired. And he retired from the Abbey, but I suppose myself and my brother John kept him working, doing things. And other people did, they still asked him until I chose. Um, so the house was always full of music. It was always full of going to shows, doing things. Um, you know, I had a puppet theatre, which basically cannibalised our front living room, possibly for months on time. Uh, we did do it for months on end, and I used to do musicals and bits of things, not plays, kind of you know, things with music. Um, and um, that was kind of how things started. And, you know, we'd do shows in the hall, and when people would come, my poor brother would be inflicted to be in the shows and things like that. <laughs> uh, the usual things that people in the theatre do when they're kids. Um, and the family indulged us, and... They allowed us to be creative, really, which was kind of very cool. They, they, 
they did want us to learn the music and they insisted I learn the piano. But my piano lessons were on a Friday evening in the Clash with Batman. Okay. And they didn't ask me. They told me I was going to piano lessons, so I sulked and wouldn't practice. That went on for two years. In protest of the lack of Batman in your life? Well, there was, it meant that I went into school on Monday and didn't know what was happening. And everybody else did, and I couldn't see Batman. Okay. So I sulked. <laughs> These are important struggles. Well, it's, it's kind of like the same struggle with my mother and eggs, because I hate eggs. And my mother tried to make me eat an egg one day. And she said, you'll stay there till you eat it. I stayed six hours. Really? Mm-hmm. That might speak a little to the determination at the heart of uh, of Michael Scott, really, mightn't it? <laughs> probably, probably. Tell me about how early then formally getting involved in the business. I starts. formally started working. My first actual paid job was when I was 11. And that was in 1967. So this year I'm now working 51 years. Which is remarkable. Like... Just in, uh, it's just because I started early. It still blows my mind. I mean, well, even as, as, as many people know, because I've said it on here before, you gave me my start in the business and I was at 15, I thought I was young, but 11 is serious going. I know. And then I ended up at 12 in the Aldwych in, the, in London because the shock run, which I was in with Cyril Cusick, and my dog, I was the dog minder and the young boy, uh, the dog and me went to London with the family and I missed my confirmation in Ireland. So I was confirmed by Cardinal Heenan in Westminster Cathedral, Abbey, uh, because, not Cathedral, because I, I missed my confirmation at home. That's glorious. So I got confirmed by a cardinal. What's it like being in London at that age uh, with a show like that? Is it the most amazing experience in the world? Well, to be honest, it was just another dark space. Yes, it was London, and it was the first time I'd travelled abroad, which was cool. And the whole family went, and we all stayed in the Irish club at the time, which was a good thing. But I suppose the really funny thing was the dog misbehaved on the first night, and got a bigger laugh than Cyril. Ah, oh, wow. Uh, which Cyril didn't like. But he couldn't <laughs> upstage the dog. <laughs> and I suppose, you know, I suppose my working life with Cyril began when I was 11. I was used to him by the time I directed him. Um, and I knew how to do it. But, uh, and, and then there were photographs of me and the dog all over the London papers. as kind of, you know, the ideal child with the dog. So it was quite amusing. But then, you know, I came back and went to school. Yeah, I mean, at that stage... And I suppose I have to say that the, the, the most important lesson I ever learned in the theatre was sitting in the Aldwych the night the show closed, because it had been a huge success. And I remember coming out of the party, because I was, you know, after a certain amount of lemonade, that's all you go and you go, whatever. And I remember sitting in the darkened auditorium, watching them taking the set down and realising that it was over, mm. that show's finish, and that's it. Once they're done, they're done. Yeah. Uh, as I said to you earlier when I showed you some of my posters, they're all in one place. I don't do the past because to me, once the show is done, largely the show is done. Mm. It might have taken a year. It might have taken five years, 10 years, 18 years in the case of one thing. <laughs> but once it's done, it's over. And Anna was, Anna Manahan was like that. She used to say, oh, when it's done, I move on. And, and I do move on. I move on to what's next um, because what's next is what's interesting. I don't dwell on the memories of success because the next show could be a big flop and you're only as good as the thing you're doing and hopefully people like it or even pay to come and see it which is even better in, in an ideal so, world <laughs> so that was the most valuable lesson I ever learned when I was 11 um, that it, it's over when it's over mm. and that you can't dwell on it and you can't go wouldn't it be nice if because that's not the way it goes on you you become the part of the next thing and the next thing was when I was 15 I ended up in the Scottish play playing Fleance with um, Ray your grandfather and he was um, 
extraordinary and monstrous and wonderful, <laughs> just like Anna Manham. Well, there you go. I love when I meet people, it, they, they're usually split 50-50. The stories are, I worked with your granddad, he was a genius, and then it either goes, and the nicest man I ever met, or I worked with your grandfather, he was a genius, and the biggest bollocks of all time. Well, no, he wasn't a bollocks, but, you know, he, we were doing a very dangerous play. Uh, the, the Macduff had been injured before the show opened and he'd replaced by Shane Conahan. And I was in a fight, which nearly set the stage on fire one evening, and my father had a 21-hour nosebleed. So, you know, I'm very superstitious about the Scottish play. Yeah. Um, and it was very tricky. It was on a metal set. There was lots of sword fighting. And it was in the days before health and safety. And, you know, people kind of did this fight. So, yes, the fight guy came in, but then that was the end of the fight guy. So it wasn't the levels of safety and stuff. So it, it was also, you know, the Abbey hadn't been doing Shakespeare. It was the first really big Shakespeare the Abbey had done, I think. And it was an extraordinary production. You know, there were an extraordinary group of the Abbey Company mm. and they all knew how to speak and they all knew how to deliver and they all knew how to enunciate and they knew how to speak Shakespeare and you could hear them mm. um, and that was an extraordinary experience because uh, when I was in the shock run I learned you know you learn as the show goes on after three or four nights you start to kind of save the lines but I learned from listening to really good actors speaking Shakespeare how Shakespeare goes yeah and that was a lesson I also learned when I was out on tour in when I was 17 and 18 with, with Chris O'Neill's company 4 and one when we were touring with the Weird and Summer Tours. Um, because, because we used to, it was a fit up touring, I, used, I learned Act 1 off, Act, act 2 off, so that uh, I could pack Act 1 during Act 2 and unpacked Act 3. And I learned Act 3 off so I could pack Act 2 during Act 1 because I was prompting. So I learned to listen. And the thing I learned from listening was how audiences and actors work with the public. How the sound of the show is actually almost more important than what they're seeing. Because and at rehearsals, I have to confess, I often really, I, I always close my eyes. And sometimes if I'm really tired, I have fallen asleep. <laughs> I confess this too. But it's actually about listening. I, I I only once made the mistake. I don't think I even did it, actually. No, I didn't ever do it. Because I, I worked with Barry Casson, who did it, which was to write out in a plan before you went into rehearsals what people were going to do. And when I was starting directing, although I had a bursary from the Arts Council to go and learn to be attorney producer in Paris, nobody taught directing. Nobody taught you how to do it. You kind of did it. And I started doing it in UCD. And it became hugely successful in the show I did that was biggest hit was Tommy, which moved from UCD to the Olympia. And it really was kind of babes on Broadway. But not because we didn't have to technically do it. It was because I was actually taking a show which should be made in a big empty space and putting it into the Olympia where it didn't really want to go in the same way. And it looked wrong in the Olympia because it was a lesson I'd learned when I first went to college after I'd been, you know, in, involved working in the Abbey because I'd worked in the Abbey as a, as a kind of a kid techie mm. since I was about 12 on Gettings on Sundays. Uh, I, I learned the theatre was about prosceniums and when I went to UCD they had this building called this room called LG1 which was which was 50 by 30 and that was the theatre and I tried to make it initially I did spreading the news in a glorious set that looked exactly like it could have come out of the Peacock but it was absolutely appalling because it really was the right the wrong show in the wrong place and I learned 
and was eaten for it by everybody <laughs> uh, because everybody was like hot shit in those days. There was amazing people there um, and nobody was taken prisoners. And I learned that if you have a room like this, you treat it differently and you learn about the fact that it's a big empty space. And I learned, and I suppose my idea of making theatre, which is about the audience and the actor and the words, comes from the fact that I learned by stripping everything back of necessity because the room does not want lots of big scenery yeah. that it's all about communication it's all about seeing the whites of their eyes it's about hearing how they're sounding or how they're not sounding it's about knowing when they want to turn away it and some of those shows like when I had Tommy there was about 100 people in it sometimes because there was a couple of scenes where lots of people wanted to be in the show and there was a couple of group scenes and like people who'd be passing would just kind of like oh we, were in, we saw it last week we're coming be in that scene and they'd all suddenly when they were doing Sally Simpson there wouldn't be 20 there'd be 60 Amazing. and it was quite funny and you know but the lesson that was there was why do you make theatre how do you make it? What is the relationship between the actor and the audience? What is going on here? And many times people said to me, oh, you do a show. And I'd say, where? Because the where is almost to me more important than the what. The what comes from the where. Really? Yes. And and not in, not in the sense of kind of site-specific theatre in the way that people talk about kind of site-specific, but just that certain things fit a certain space or speak to a certain space? Well, when I worked in the project, um, I, when I came back from being um, um, a, tr a trainee in Paris, and I lived in a garage in Paris, and I did dance classes. I got dance classes from uh, a company I'd worked in with in the Theatre Festival, because I'd been the production manager of the Theatre Festival, and I'd met international people. And I was the Arts Council told me I had to go to Europe to study, not to America. They wanted somebody to go and learn about theatre in Europe. Okay. And part of conditions of my bursary was that I had to go to Europe. So I picked Paris. I can't remember why. I think I, because I'd met people who were living in Paris when I was working at the theatre festival. Um, and I went and found out lots of things about making theatre in ways that we don't make it here. When I came back, I, I, I remember saying to Joe Darling of the Abbey, oh, you know, great in space and whatever. He said, you'll never work in the Abbey. You will never work for me. I'll not have you say the word space to my actors. <laughs> and I just went grand. And People were quite, you know, I was 24 and full of it, but I also was actually full of it. I had really specific ideas that I wanted to do. Um, and I made a list of things I wanted to do, and I've done half of those. What you... And that included the fact that when we did Bent in the project, which was supposed to be the alternative place, and I did Bent um, at a time when nobody would touch the play. Yeah. They'd had it for the theatre festival, and everybody had turned down doing it. Nobody wanted to be in it. And I said, OK, I want to do it like this. And I got Bronwyn Casson, who I knew had worked with the Théâtre du Soleil. Um, and I asked her to design it for me. And I had to beg and borrow her out of the Abbey to do it. Actually, I always had to beg and borrow Roman out of the Abbey to do the shows we did. And, you know, we, we, we emptied the project. We put 10 tonnes of gravel in. We had real fires. I had real trees. I took all of the seats out and put in mattresses and armchairs because in France they have this row called Les Fauteuils, which is the armchairs. And I thought it would be kind of cool to have a row of Les Fauteuils in the project. Yeah. So I had barrels, armchairs, mattresses, everything you could possibly find as the seating so that when you came into the project, you were, for the very first time in Irish theatre, confronted with something you didn't expect. And of course, the gravel allowed me to not only be careful about the words, 
but also about the sound of people walking, mm-hmm. how they walked, how emotionally they walked, how when I needed them to say something important, they had to stand still, how we put bits of carpet or other things in different parts of the space so that people had the opportunity to do certain things and whatever. And people were shocked and amazed by the fact that I used real materials and um, got a group of actors together who did actually lift about seven tonnes of real stones across the stage. And we used to do exercises out on the roof of the project, uh, lifting real stones. We actually got quarry stones and they lifted fucking huge stones, not small little rocky things, (laughs) fucking huge stones. It was was Garrett Keogh and Vinnie McCabe and they were extraordinary, you know, and and Kieran Hines was Greta in it. Um, and, um, you know, we, we played Kieran's scene because we rehearsed it in the dressing room of the project. And so we played the whole of Kieran's scene with the back to the audience, but they saw him in the mirror. And I did all of the things that you weren't supposed to do. And we had extraordinary lighting from Rupert Martin. And we had real switches and real surfaces and things that broke or smashed. Uh, it was what Michael Ford's first professional show, actually. Wow. Um, and... That was a, a huge turning point for people because they realised that he was this young 24-year-old who actually was full of it and actually could deliver. How... Cons- and that wasn't a good thing in Ireland in those days. Well, that's days. what I was going to say. How, how conservative... That was really bad. How, how conservative was Irish theatre at that time? Well, when I eventually became the, the theatre director of the project and a show didn't work, it was because I wasn't gay. I used to overhear the I'd walk into the office and I'd hear them talking, oh, it's, it's gay, it's not, that's why it's not working. And, you know, objectionable things were said to me because we used to get extraordinary reviews. I think we got a review for um, Three Bunches of Blood and a Lump of Fog, which Sean McCarthy adapted for us, which said something like, there's a revolution happening in Irish theatre. I saw something like this last night and this now. And I think we played to 20 people. Yeah. And the show was invited abroad and the board attacked me because we weren't doing political theatre because the project previously had the Sheridans and it had done all of the stuff. Yeah. And people didn't realise that the actual act of what we were doing with the the theatre and I was doing with the company and even the company itself really were, were kind of going going a little bit along the way but like they weren't getting the audience they thought they should be getting and they were kind of becoming, you know, we'll get somebody else to do it because whatever. And I thought, well... Do you know, like the first show I did on the project when I was the director of it was The Morning After Optimism. And we brought in, I think, 40 real trees which had to be watered. We had real turf on the ground. Everything was completely real. And again, you had to walk through the trees to get to your seats to just force you to look at the place differently. And and, and was it a real forest? It couldn't be. But there it was. (laughs) And it smelt like you were in a forest. And... Was the acting good? Yes, the acting was, but it wasn't the acting everybody expected from running out of And I was in my 20s and probably not sad enough to do it. Um, it's justice. But then the, stri- the show afterwards, we stripped the place back to an empty, completely empty stage and we did amazing masks and costumes, some of which I made, and they're all still lurking around the place. And so the show after that was Extremities, the European premiere of Extremities. So, you know, I was interested in forcing an agenda which was about and, and when we did extremities we built a room you could have lived in the room you literally wow. could have lived there and then straight after that we, we smashed a hole in the roof of the project and put an aeroplane through for Casimir Braun and a lake and a giant mirror and it was about the fact that we I was questioning the very act of making theatre when you come into the building what's imaginary where does imagination start and stop does the physicality of these things stop you from imagining or does it enhance it what happens or the, the 
I suppose it's a bit like with the Cullen cycle. When I did that in the RHA downstairs, it was a found space. And I worked very hard on things that were found. Every object in the show was found. I found the bricks in a corner. I found Cucullin's spear as an old Christmas tree. And the tragedy is that when I was doing the field, one of the stage management went into my prop room and cut Cucullin's spear, and I can't do it since. Oh, wow. Because I didn't look for the objects. They came to me. Yeah. And every one of them came with its own life. Every object existed somewhere else. And all of the shows I do... People always laugh at me about the matchmaker, which we've been doing for quite a while, and there's like stuff on the stage, and they're going, No, you can't change that. That was Anna's script, and that chair was this, and it came from here. Because every single thing that is in every one of my shows, from the costumes to whatever, has a life somewhere else. It brings that life with it into the production. It's not simply can we dress people. And I've had one or two shows where people have, you know, hired costumes and it's never quite the same as the fact that I prefer, I have 5,000 costumes and I prefer to raid them mm. because I know where they come from and I know they have lives and I know the objects of lives. So in The Matchmaker, the cup, I know where it comes from. I know where the glass comes from. I know that the teacup, which was broken, was bought by somebody else <laughs> in another th- in another place. And they have lives. Those lives come with them into the production each yeah. time. And sometimes, you know, you can pair things back to the absolute small amount of things, but the things you have, the detail, is so important because it helps everybody. Um, and over the years, I've had groups of actors I've worked maybe with maybe five or six different groups of actors so it's kind of like being having five companies yeah. you know and at the moment I'm working with John Kenny and Mary McAvoy and, and other people and um, it's again we have a language of working and you develop with people over a couple of shows a language of working and they also understand when you do fuss about the fact that this is a spear or this is a sword or this is, you know, a, a thing. And when they understand why I'm obsessed about those things, they actually understand why I'm making theatre. Mm. Um, you know, people kind of go, oh, you're, you're doing the matchmaker and it's forever. And, they, and I know a lot of young people who have no idea that 40 years ago I was considered, I called the James Dean of Irish Theatre. And they were wondering, was I going to flood the place next? Because every show was a complete, you know, we built a wrestling ring for Trafford Tansy. We put a complete running river with a, 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 a holocaust and a car in for Antigone and trees like Beckett and made you cross the river to get to your seats. So what was these about? Was this just acquitation? When we did The Curse of the Starving Class, we filled the theatre with sand and put a broken mirror in it and had Karen Hines and, and, and Maury Didi, who was, you know, Mrs Reardon, scrubbing the floor. Um what's this about? Why are these things here? You know, I, I've recently been looking at, at, at other theatres kind of, you know, doing these big, huge, gigantic sets. And when we did The Matchmaker initially, we had this huge set that used to take four hours to get in and out. And there was floor cloths and there was star cloths and there was all sorts of things. And when John Kenny and I and Mary sat down and looked at it in 2014, we put the first big set on again. Yeah. And then we actually kind of went, you know, they're not applauding the set. They're actually applauding the acting, the language, the storytelling and the being with you. And we stripped it back and we can now tour it in, in, in even the gaiety version, apart from the star cloth, can effectively fit in my car. Not just because it's effective uh, financially, but because actually that's what we need to do the show. That's the essence of it. That's the essence of it. The essence of of theatre to me is acting. It's about the actor and the audience and how that relationship works. And if that relationship isn't interesting, you're bored. Yeah. 
Now you could be, you know, I go to, I go to shows, Marcella screams at me, my husband screams at me when I go to some stuff in France and there's extraordinary acting and I kind of doze after a while and I kind of go, well, yeah, so, you know, you wake up and you doze and it's the experience. It doesn't, you don't have to be there for every minute of it. <laughs> Do you know, I've slept at some of my own shows, some of the greatest <laughs> places. I've paid for extraordinarily expensive seats in some theatres all over the world and had great sleeps. Why? Because I, I think the worst sleep I had was that I went to Starlight Express and I just couldn't take it. I, I think I was going to leave at the interval, but I stayed because I paid so much for the ticket. But it was boring beyond all because it was machinery and gimmicks. And yes, the actors were very talented and yes, the music was bearable. But really, it wasn't done to communicate. You know, why do you do? Who do you play for? Why do you play? Those are the questions about everything. It's it's like my eighth song cycle. It took me 18 years from the idea of doing it to finish working on Inish Free. It actually took 18 years to do the song. It took me two and a half years to do When You Are Old. One or two other songs I wrote in 20 minutes because I was in the vibe. And I, you know, it's like, how do I pick a song to work on Yates? Why do I work with Yates? Because he's very difficult. He's extraordinarily demanding. His language has no room for manoeuvre. You must deliver Yates like Yates, just like Shakespeare. Uh, I, I went last year to see students doing Shakespeare in Dublin accents and the cadences are all wrong. They're just not in the same place mm. in a Dublin accent as they are in spoken English. It's not the way you should be doing Shakespeare. It's not cool. Uh, I think you can put an accent into a Shakespeare show, but to do the whole thing and it's sort yeah. of, that, to me, if you want to do Shakespeare, do Shakespeare. Yes, and let it stand on its own merits. And if you want to go and do a Dublin play, go and go do a Dublin play. There's lots of Dublin plays to do if you want everybody to do Dublin accents. I don't think it helps Shakespeare. I think it's difficult enough to do Shakespeare coherently without missing. And so I'm very old-fashioned in those sort of ways, but that doesn't mean that I couldn't challenge the fuck out of you by doing it the way I wanted, mm. by making it so searingly dangerous and questioning the very act of making the theatre itself happen in the simplest of ways that stays in your head. That's what's interesting. Um, you've mentioned Mr. Yates. Uh, in the way that sometimes he chooses to write in uh, poetry, sometimes he chooses to make drama. Every single Yates piece has its own structure. There is no rule to doing Yates. You have to actually work with every... That's why it took, Inish Free took so long. Because there are other song versions of, of Inish Free, for instance, which yeah. are the same, which is, you know, whatever the tune is, da, 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 three times. My version of Inish Free, for instance, is a complete journey. It starts in one place and the second verse is a completely new tune to the first verse. And then the third verse is a reprise with the first verse, but in a completely new key, but you don't notice. Because it's a journey to actually understand what he wanted to say in this poem is part of the difficulty of working with it. Not that you couldn't easily go, ah, oh, that'll fit. <laughs> I, I, it's like when we did the Ku Cullen cycle, we had four or five weeks of rehearsing with the musicians every day as part of the show. There's nothing written down still for the Ku Cullen cycle. Really? There's not a single note written oh, down. Because everybody learnt it. Yeah. Everybody owned it. And everybody learnt the leap motifs in the music and everybody learnt how the sound of the music worked. It was an experiment that had taken two years. But it was about learning how the sound of the words needed, where it needed a bit of extra extra something. Not because the words didn't work, but because when we approached these older authors like Yeats and like Shakespeare, sometimes, particularly Yeats, because it does seem so dense and you're supposed to love it. Oh, and, and it's the reason I've put music to some Yeats things. Why? Because isn't Inishree good enough without the word, without music? 
Yes, it is. But what helps you actually understand the story? Other things. And I think if you listen to my Inish Free, you hear a different story to hearing the same thing three times with just the verses. It's not about that. I don't fit the Yeats words into a musical bar. I fit the music to the way the words work. And, and that's very tricky because that's also how Shakespeare works. It's how does it sound? Where does it work? How how do you learn to speak Yeats as if you're talking like you and me? Mm. And it doesn't sound like grand, boring, dead theatre. Because when we did the, 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 the Yeats shows, I was cognizant of the fact that the Abbey, the Peacock, had done year after year after year of extraordinarily boring Yeats, which would put, put the audience to sleep and turn people off Yeats. Yeah. And I was determined to find a way which was epic and yet immediate. And I worked with the idea of using Irish music and rock structures to make things seem familiar and yet to deepen your understanding. So there, are, in the Cucullin cycle, for instance, there are leap motifs for each character, which often overlap in different keys mm. when something's happening, so that you can actually say, oh, this bit actually relates. This, this woman here is actually the woman from part one, now in a different key because she's actually transformed into this. So these, this, the music takes you through the story. Um, and I think that that's how you also use, use text, how you use speech in a play, how it works. I, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not a great lover of going to see plays where everybody says fuck it a hoodie. Sorry. <laughs> it's very nice, but I've really... I've living under that, how dare you? <laughs> listen, I've done plays where people say fuck it a hoodie. And I got very good hoodies. And I knew where they came from. But the thing is, I think that what's extraordinary is when you see, you know, some, for instance, an actor like Tom Vaughan Lawler who can do fuck in a hoodie one day Absolutely. and then can do off and do Arturo are an extraordinary thing. I find it sad that not that there are, you know, the great glorification of people because they're good doing this part. But in fact, to be a versatile actor, to be an actor like your your grandfather, like Anna Manahan, like Cyril Cusick, like, you know, if you look into the the, the, the English repertoire of people, you know, Daniel Craig can do absolute, you know, slobber and then can be extraordinary. These, yeah. these people actually can act. Yeah. Acting is a profession. It's a technical thing. There's ways of doing it. And I, I, I'm... I'm quite good at working with older people and older actors because I understand. I survived Cyril Cusack several <laughs> times. Michael Prage didn't when we did the carousel, but I did. Um, because I understood what it was they needed, what the insecurities were. Why would I work with those people? Because they know how to fuck to do their job. Mm-hmm. You work differently with people like that. I've done shows where I've gone, oh, Jesus, right. I think if we do this and you say that and you leave a beat or a pause here, like when I do the vagina monologues, I know every single beat in the show. I know how the laughs are and what they are. And Fenella Fielding, who's, you know, Marty Feldman's sister and a Diane of the English theatre, you say, darling, where do I stop? Because you know how it works, darling. Can you tell me? And I'd say, yes, leave a beat there and you get a laugh. Move those two sentences together and leave a comma here. Not a beat, just a comma. And she'd go, thank you, darling. And she could do it. Yeah. And she just knew technically, she wanted to be told technically how to do it emotionally. Right, okay. yes, I get you. There's lots of kind of, oh, I'll find it, I'll find it, I'll find it. But why the fuck if you find it and you can't speak the language? Yeah. Finding it's great and everybody sees lots of tears and shouting. I went to see a young actor doing Hamlet a couple of years ago in UCD and they screamed the way through the show. It was very emotive. But it wasn't any good because, in fact, there was no contact between us and the character because the character was in such turmoil before it started. It was playing the end of the show before we even yeah. got to the end of the show. Yeah. And those are, you know, those are mistakes people make. And, and I'm really kind of cool with working with 
really difficult and more established people because I like the challenge of working with them. I like them challenging me. I like the fact that they don't, you know, I have often sat at rooms full of very difficult people wanting to see could I direct them. And they go, right. And after two days of working, they go, you know, it's like Dorian Hepburn when I was doing Ghosts with Dorian Hepburn and David Kelly. And Phyllis was kind of going, you know, oh, it's David Kelly and Dorian. This and I went, yeah, 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 Phyllis. And David Kelly and I used to have a battle every day as to who could have the best tie. Wow. And we'd have tea breaks and I'd direct them at tea breaks. And we'd tell old stories about the old days because I'm, I'm, I know the old days and I know all the old people too are the ones that are still going. And we'd do all of the work then. And then we'd get up and they'd do their jobs. And then I'd come back and we'd have a tea break and I'd discuss it with them. Yeah. And they needed that sort of work. There's other people who I'd say, look, could you move here? I don't like blocking things. Yeah. Because if you block things, you're forcing something um, not honest about it. And it, that's why I close my eyes often and listen. Because if people are actually saying it correctly and actually know what they're doing, they're in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Now, occasionally me as the sneaky director makes the right place to be here, here and here because that's how we want to light it. <laughs> but that's my business and that's none of your worry. Yeah. That's for me to know and you to actually go, oh gosh. I mean, there were when we did Torchlight and Laser Beams with Christopher Nolan, that was quite specific. There were, there were, there was nearly two days of lighting and people literally had to stand where the light came through a crack in the wall. Really? But it was a particular thing because it was about a, a set which was made from other people's old scenery, painted black, Everybody was locked in the room and the light poured in from outside. And the point was that it was about being seen in the cracks of light yeah. as Christopher learned to communicate with the world. And then the stage brightened. But like that was a very technical rehearsal. But generally, um, you know, I don't and I, and, I, and I do work with you know huge groups of people. I tend not to um, block things, although I will if I'm doing a big musical or a big big thing we'll put certain marks on the floor and I'll say this is the quarter mark this is the half mark and you'll be kind of here when you're doing this so it looks like it's got patterning about it with its natural patterning rather than you've actually got to take six steps yeah. now when I did Celtic Woman and the stage that from the CD and the DVD live that was about take six steps because that's all electronically controlled right. and I remember we had a week in a theatre where they had the original show, chandeliers from Versailles and we had a week of teching the show. And it was literally, you will sing this and you will walk four steps and the lights will electronically move there. And you have to be there every day on that moment at that place. Yeah. And that's a completely different type of doing show. Yeah. Um, and that was, that, was, that was, you know, it's a different sort of thing. But if, if we're doing an ordinary play or things like that, I like the idea that people um, contribute with you to making the things. Like, there are a few actors who write things down. But you, were, you weren't there yesterday when you said it. And I go, yes, and probably he'll be over there tomorrow when he says it there. You just, and and I have had one or two disasters with people who really work in an oh in a way where they're they're most comfortable by kind of like you know settling everything, and and I like things being settled, but I like the fact that every night's different, and every audience is different, and you're different that day, so the show is different, and it's equally the same. Yeah, and that's that's the you know the the tricky thing about theatre. It is about uh, wanting to have precision and yet at the same time the experience of being which is what makes theatre interesting in terms of and dangerous yeah because that's where it's really dangerous yeah when it's left open when it's left completely open and like when we did the hostage 
it was very carefully rehearsed. Neil Tobin and I had spent a year working on the, the adaptation and the translation. Um, and the rehearsal process was actually quite quick. Um, and yet we got to the bit, I kind of, you know, we got to the bit where we kind of did this party in part two. And it developed a bit, bit by bit as the show went on into a much bigger kind of party. But, but everybody knew what we wanted to achieve. And as they worked out how to do that better with the audience, because they knew their jobs, the party got better and more interesting and more like a real party. Because the first few shows were, God, this is great fun. I'm having a great time. But bit by bit by bit, they, they, not only did it become a great time, it, the precision, the understanding. You know, me, Michael Grinnell used to sing um, um, uh, The Coolin'. And when he got very excited, he had a shotgun because he was in the old IRA and he'd raise it up and wave it around and everybody'd duck like fuck. Because nobody realises that the IRA in the 1950s was the joke. Right. It was literally like, oh, Jesus, they do it after tea. Right. Do you know? And these people were after dinner IRA men. Mm-hmm. And they'd arrest somebody and they'd almost kill somebody, but they actually did it only after tea or whenever they weren't doing the Angelus or after school. <laughs> but it, and Brian was laughing at this. And a modern audience doesn't get that when they see the play. They just go, what is that? Because the IRA is now the IRA that was, you know, the Jerry Adams IRA, whatever. So you don't get the, you don't understand what was going on in the play at the time and how do you communicate that and that's why you know I got Michael to sing the Coolin as the IRA man beautifully mm. with all of the but but he waved his gun around because really that was the whole thing it was like you know this after dinner IRA stuff and, and those things deepen the experience for the audience they're subtle they're not necessarily written they're things that you develop and you kind of go instinctively, oh, we should do this. Or, you know, I play the quiet land of Aaron under something else that's happening because emotively the song does something to you and you don't understand it. So, but it makes you listen to the dialogue in a different way. Given that you've worked in as many diverse roles as you have within theatre, as you now create a show, uh, as you look into your toolkit of, well, I know what I can do with lights or I know what I can do with music or I know what I can do with, you know, directing a great performance here. How how do you construct a show, or indeed even before that, how do you conceive of a show, or is it all completely show by show dependent? Um, I'm working on two projects which will, will be in the UK in the next two to four years, and I know the space. Um, I know what I want to achieve. With the reason I'm doing them is I know I know what I want to do with the audience with the show. That's intriguing. Okay. So that's where it starts. That's What's the relationship between the actor and yeah. the audience? Okay. What's the audience experience coming in? What will they feel like as the show is happening? How can I find actors who are going to be so in control of their form that they can take dangerous, dangerous risks every night doing something that they will enjoy and the audience will enjoy their enjoyment as part of doing the show? How they will seem to just be and not to be acting. And yet they will be some of the most technically adept, difficult, treacherous, monstrous and wonderful people. That's fascinating to me. I mean, because for me, the audience experience is the, is the beginning and the end of it. I mean, so to, but to hear you talk about how, that that's even the impetus for the show or the, or the impulse of how you go and create it. Is... Every show I've ever done, it's been always about, no, except for one, which I did as a job. <laughs> It was awful. We all have to pay the bills. Yeah, I would know. 
was, oh, anyway, don't go there. It was a disaster. Uh, but and it wasn't. It was. It was just bad to start with. And it was like a commercial person saying, "I've got this money. I want to do the show. Will you do it?" And I'm going, "Okay, you've got all this money. You're very rich. Maybe you know about these things. I'll do it." And it was a bad idea. But no, it is to me always about, always about, the the relationship between the actor and the audience and what's happening in the space. You know, wh- why do you need... I remember when we did The Normal Heart in the project and we had to fight. The Normal Heart, we did it in 1987. We did the Irish premiere. Um, and um, I remember the actors were kind of, you know, we were doing an office scene and it was it was very stripped back to kind of white walls that were decaying and there was a floor and there was not much else. And there was, at one stage, there was a, a, a table, which was a, an examination table, which became a desk. Um, and then eventually got cut in half and became a low table. Um, and then into Act Two, there was nothing whatsoever on the stage, and there was an office. And they were all going, "Oh, chairs!" And I went, "No, no, you can have a, you can have a wire basket and a telephone." <laughs> and once everybody understood that it was actually about the acting, and not about the, you know, I think Dorian Hepburn taught me so much about acting, and I've I'm terrible. As a result, she 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 changed my my way of directing dramatically. Because when we were doing Ghosts, Dorian used to say to me, darling, shall I do looking off at the burning orphanage in the fire while putting on my coat acting? And I'd say, yes, that would be brilliant. And she used to do, shall I do this speech and sherry acting? I said, that's it. And even do some exiting acting there, Dorian. That would be really cool. Or looking sad at the moment. And, you know, I've often said to people, you know, coming on, well, this is where you do, entering really quickly, you see the others, you don't think it's a good idea, and you go very, very quickly off acting. <laughs> And they go, what? I said, that's what you do. You're going to come on very quickly. And what's your impetus? You don't like everybody else. What are you going to do? You're going to do exiting act, fast acting. That's what you're doing. Because I do remember during this show, somebody said, why am I doing this? And I said, at the end of the week, we pay you. <laughs> that's why you're fucking doing it. But that's an extreme. But, 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 but Doreen taught me a lot about the idea of acting. When it is real, where are we doing? What are we doing? I'm doing, you know, shuffling and putting my coat on acting. I we could struggle emotionally and say why? Because struggling emotionally to put your coat on while doing this creates a particular effect. But let's do putting your coat on acting. It's an easy way of saying, wouldn't that be lovely, darling? And she was just so cool about doing this. And David Kelly used to do. Do you want me to do sitting on the sofa with the briefcase? I said, that would be great. I'll do sitting on the suitcase, opening the briefcase for you for there acting. And I think that's lovely. But then when it came down to the language and the shop and what was going on. We were in a different place. Yeah. And it's to know how to move with people to those places. Everybody, there is no global, I don't think there's any global way of directing. I think everybody needs different, everybody has different ways they would like to be directed or, and in different plays. Sometimes you drew somebody in this play and they need this sort of work and you could the same person in another play and they need different help or whatever. It, 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 it all kind of is a movable thing. But for me, it's always about the fact that what am I doing with the actor and the audience? Mm. What is the experience? The audience walk into the building. What's happening? Are they going to sit in nice red seats and the curtain goes up and it's all very safe? Are they going to not do this? Are we going to do something really naughty? Are we going to blind them? Are we going to do whatever? What are we going to do? Are we going to deafen them? (laughs) Because there's a part, for instance, in the successful TV where he makes a political speech and it it is actually like a Nuremberg rally. And it's deafening. Right. It's literally like Adolf doing it and he's doing a political speech. But it's equally, if you look into the Irish psyche, like Dev and all of that that military stuff that went on. And without 
without actually saying anything. We just do it and then we move on to the next thing. It's not like we dwell and got worse, be very clever. It's just there. It's a moment. It goes on. But it is about understanding. Like, you know, John John Kenny wrote music and I wrote music. And between the two of us, we, we it took us nearly two or three months to actually get the score right. Because it, it took us 18 months to do the, the successful TD. Uh, myself, John and Mary working on it really every week and eventually doing like eight weeks of concert rehearsal but then when we did eight weeks rehearsal we then played it in very very odd and you know far away places we played it in for august september october november january and february before it opened we played it for five months and worked at it Every day, every show was an analysis of that worked, that didn't work, this is staying, the music isn't working, this is not going to work. We we still, with the matchmaker, recently we, we changed something again, and that's after playing it for four years. Really? We, we're constantly listening, we're constantly working with the audience. It's not just there. Everything is examined, everything is listened to. I listen to the show every evening, I go out and I work with it, I listen to them. If there's a, a comma in the wrong place, I know it. If it's if something's not right, I'll know it. If the lighting's not going to be the way they want, but I can do the same thing with this, I'll say to them, I can't do this tonight because the venue has 12 lights, not 16. Yeah. So you're going to do this and this and here. But we both know we need to achieve that effect the same way in a different... So we understand those things. But we're still, just because we're playing these shows a long time, doesn't mean that they're dead. It means that we're actually, they're alive because we're actually listening. We're listening to audiences. We're going, they're not laughing. Why? They're so old, they can't move. Why didn't they stand up tonight at the end? They all had sticks. <laughs> Do you know, sometimes there are those moments. But then there's other moments where it's extraordinary and just go, oh, it's fucking amazing. And, and, but it is about listening. It's about never accepting the fact that we know it. Mm. The whole point is we don't. Mm. Every day, every space is a different challenge. Talk to me a little bit about the model of touring that you have going at the moment because it seems that it, it it seems to have removed an awful lot of kind of the people the hoops and hurdles that people might presume are in the way to getting work made and out there and it feels like you're just finding a way to get it done and get the work out there I am I stopped dealing with the Arts Council it made it much easier right simple as that yeah actually uh, it did uh, we used to tour in fact we stopped dealing with the Arts Council way back back in the middle of the about 2003 or 2004 and you know, we we tour. I always maybe do two oh, between two and two hundred and eighty performances a year of different shows, and we might have had done six or seven different shows. Sometimes there'd be things that'd be in rep, like the Matchmaker. There'd be probably a children's show. We'd do, um, uh, we did Jane Eyre. We did Wuthering Heights. We did we did the Portents of Being Earnest. We did we did a lot of shows. We toured them in lots of different places in different ways, and you know, like the Matchmaker has a set in three versions, one which will fit in a small venue, one which will fit in a nice venue, and one which will fit in the Gaiety. Yeah. And so we needed to work out, when we were doing the successful TD, we needed to work out, for instance, how do we do that again? How do we make a show that can go from somewhere where we really are dealing with, you know, a hotel situation almost, to the Gaiety? How yeah. do you do that? What What are the essence what are the essential things that make the show work for the audience? When's the bit where you actually need to add the extra pieces to make it worth the extra price? What, what, what does the acting change? No, the acting doesn't change. Does the relationship between the actor and the audience change? No, it doesn't. What is changing? 
let's throw some more scenery at it. Let's do something else. Let's yeah. do a few more revealing things. Let's do a few more theatrical things. Yes, that's fine. But but really, in the long run, no matter what happens, it all comes down to the actor and the audience. All of it. How the actor is with the audience, how they sound, how the audience hears them. What are they hearing? And in terms of actors, we've talked about, you know, Cyril and my granddad and Anna Manna. These are huge personalities. Yes, David Kelly, David Dorian Hepburn, well, exactly. Phyllis Ryan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are names to conjure with. Um, how... There's more people, but I can't remember them. <laughs> how, how do you... What do you think of actors? I think they're very brave. Right. Uh, I always say to people, because they used to go, how do you deal with that terrible scene that just happened? I kind of go, well, it's very simple. I'm asking them to be extraordinarily fragile and emotional and to go out on the stage and tear themselves apart to do this show. And don't be a fool and think that when they walk off, it's over. It hurts to do it. Anna Manahan used to spend the whole day getting ready to do the show that night. And like when we're doing shows, we, we do, even the matchmaker, we, we think about it all day. It's, it's the thing. You know, it doesn't stop because they walk off the stage. Mm-hmm. If they're coming off the stage in their particular emotional place, or they need to be in an emotional place, well, maybe they'll throw a scene, or maybe they won't throw a scene. Or maybe, you know, they'll be, they'll be feeling insecure, or whatever. You know, in a rehearsal room, it's kind of okay, but you can have terribly difficult things that happen in shows, and you, people can't just walk off the stage and go, well, I have a cup of tea, please. It doesn't work like that. You can't ask people to, to take to take themselves apart in front of 100 or 200 or 2,000 people and then pretend that they're going to go off and just kind of go, wasn't that a lovely evening we all had? No, it doesn't work like that. They, they, people have to be terribly brave to go into those dark places mm. emotionally. Even if those dark places are kind of happy places, it's still, you know, one, one end of that energy, the other end of the energy. It's a very difficult thing to be an actor. Um, but it's also... An extremely, I think, rewarding thing because I'm kind of like sometimes I kind of go, oh, fuck, you know, get, they get to go and do it. And I actually kind of have to sit at the back and like we've all been through the emotion and like <laughs> they get to do it every night. And I kind of just have to sit there and watch them do it. And I don't get that release that they get by doing it. Because when you do expiate and you do give in these things that, that, that you know, and I tend to do plays, to be honest, that require huge emotional moments because I like those moments because they work with audiences those I'm really dreadful at doing kind of you know would I do a coward play yes I would I'd love to do a coward play and I'd like to do Shakespeare I haven't done them but well Shakespeare would be quite dramatic but nonetheless those coward plays they're 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 they're, 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 again they're machines they work in a certain way you have to understand how what does this need to work but with, with the big emotional shows the big things that I do that are kind of huge you 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 have to gear get people into a place where they're able to do it it's not like day one they can do it it's like how do you it's like racehorse training or training for a marathon how do you get to the place to do this how does it get there and 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 what energy is required and it's silly to think that that energy just switches off because they walk off stage and they're set the scene yeah. it doesn't go away you know uh, your your grandfather was a particular thing like he was when he'd do the Scottish play he'd come off and he'd be in that place and you just don't be in the way when he comes off yeah do you know and, 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 but that's, I think that's what's cool about it. And that's why I like working with really experienced actors because they know and they know in rehearsals when to give and they also know when to just hold back and when to just mark through it. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they know that you know they're marking through it and not doing it. And 
that's that's an exciting thing because you're you're sort of working in a different way. You work in a different way to to working with somebody. You know, what do I do? Where do I stand? What do I say? I've worked with a couple of. Sometimes I've had mixtures of really experienced people and less experienced people. And I remember I did one show where we were developing the show, and a lot of people who were in the show were 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 not necessarily used to developing shows, but were experienced enough to know what was kind of needed to make it work. Yeah. And their characters were bigger and better and stronger written characters in the long run because they contributed more yeah. than the other people who actually kind of came on and said the lines a bit. Yeah. Now, they were very good coming on and saying the lines, but they didn't, they didn't actually contribute. In, they, 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 were, they were more passive in the creation of the work than they were than other people. And the people who were less, less passionate... Um, like, for instance, I, use, I, I love working with Clive Garrity. Lots yes. of people go, oh, my God, no, you kill me. And I go, no, he won't. And like with Cyril, you know, I used to have Cyril. I, mean, I remember saying to a young, a young actor who was working with Cyril in one of the, the passion plays, don't tell him anything. You know, Cyril will eat you. And Cyril was doing Herod and he, was, he had four pages of monologue. And people would always say, oh, Cyril forgets his lines. And Cyril doesn't forget his lines. He... He takes everything in a paragraph over four pages and he'll spin the paragraph around, but he won't put anything from paragraph A into paragraph B, or paragraph B into paragraph C. He'll spin the paragraph around so that it feels new. It feels fresh. And maybe he won't quite give you the cue, but if he's act- if you're listening, yeah, if you're listening, you'll know when you've got the cue. Yeah. And that's the exciting thing about good actors. They listen to each other on stage. It's not like they just say the lines and then they wait for your line. They're listening. The play is actually about them with each other and you. It's 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 a triangle. Mm. It works like that. And so everybody's listening. And actors like Cyril make you listen. Okay, like fuck, but yes. <laughs> yeah, they make you listen because they're working through it yeah. to make it alive. You're 51 years in now to this career. Yeah. quite something. It is. What... Does it have the capacity to still excite you to the same extent? And, and what excites you about the business still? Uh, watching the audience reacting to the work is exciting. Right. I get to see that two or three times a week. I get to see people going insane and going, wow, I'm laughing. Oh, I'm really sad. You know, in The Matchmaker, for instance, people go, oh, fuck The Matchmaker, John B. Keen, whatever. And yes, I do tour John B. Keen. I've been touring John B. Keen for 18 years. Yeah. Um, when we were reviving The Matchmaker in 2001 with Anna Malahan and Des, Cave, Des Kyo, um, I remember John had a friend down in Tralee who did another version of the same book and he called it Matchmake Me Do and I went to see it in Tralee and I said, and John said, do you want it? Do you want it? You can have it. I said, no, John, I don't want it because quite frankly, you've got all the funny bits but you don't have the ugly, nasty pieces. And that's kind of like having a wedding cake that's completely icing and there's no nasty or chewy pieces in the middle. And, you know, what's exciting is uh, when, when, when you work with somebody like John Kenny, who's a wonderful actor, and he does the sequence in part two of the show where his wife dies and he is deeply distraught. John is deeply distraught. And the audience know that. And he's often... You know, he might do the show two, three hundred times a year. And John, every night, is actually crying. Mm. He's really there. And the show has a now has a complete blackout where it just goes completely black. And it goes, oh my God, a blackout! <gasps> so dangerous! I go, yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> and it is because the audience needs that moment 
to recover from the hurt they've just been through with them. Yeah. And the deep, deep anguish. And that's what makes the play interesting. Yes, there are silly things and there are whatever. But every single one of the characters, particularly like Mary plays in the show, I daren't say she's better than Anna. But <laughs> God, they're certainly both up there. Uh, but because Mary, Mary knows each of the people who are in the show because she runs a farm. Yeah. And she makes them like, you know, we see them here where we live now and we see little people who are like the people in the matchmaker. They're actually real people. Mm-hmm. We, we play real people. They're really funny. They have terribly coarse ways or odd ways of speaking, but they're actually real people. Yeah. And I think that's probably why the show has continued touring since 2014, because it's actually making contact. Do Irish audiences encounter an actor like Mary or like John in a specific way just because that they yes they do I mean it's not and I don't mean simply about profile I mean you know particularly Mary and I I guess with John as well that they've become such an integral part of the fabric of Irish life over a long time it's really interesting I started as I said when I first started talking to you about I started working professionally in the project because I went to a party that Agnes Bernal had with my parents and met Sean O'Brien and he said we're doing a kids play to come and work and I did but from then on, I, I I worked in the Damer for two years in Irish. And in the Damer, they, I was doing something during one of the theatre festivals and somebody said, oh, they need an ASM over in the Abbey. Will you go over to the Abbey? And I went over to the Abbey to do work on a show called Waterbury Circus, which had extraordinary people in it, Eve Watkins and Tom Hickey, and was directed by a, a Brazilian man, I think, called Patrica Ionesco. And it was five hours long. Oh, Lord. And there was, there must have been 4,000 props. And I was the ASM. And it, there had been got, there was other, there was like a massive people in Mount ASM. And John Costigan, who eventually ran the gate, he was yes. the stage manager. And halfway through the run, he had a car accident. And they freaked. And they asked me, could I run the show? And I did. And I became a star overnight because I ran this huge show and just did it. And they wouldn't have jumped back. <laughs> It was only three or four days, but nonetheless, because I just did it yeah. and it was very calm and whatever. But in the process of doing that, I met Chris O'Neill, who asked me would I go out and tour with them. And I went out on tour with Chris, which was four in one players. And they used to, that was the Reardon's touring. And the Reardon's touring was Moradidi and all of the old people who'd been in the Dalton Company. Right. And that's why I said I listened to people, because I listen to them and they knew that when they were doing some of the plays like Peg of My Heart that there's a cycle there's a laugh cycle we we know in The Matchmaker there's a certain moment in the tape at the beginning and if the audience don't laugh it's going to be hard going for the first three letters yeah and I remember Maura Didi coming out uh, with I think Pat Daly at the time we were doing something it was one of those not good plays and but we knew how it worked and I remember she saying, they're not laughing. And Pat went, no, they're not. We have to get them right. And they did something to the way they delivered the lines to get the audience to laugh in the laugh cycle. Yeah. Because they knew how it worked. And it was interesting to just hear people, like they had toured since they were kids almost with the Dalton Company. And then Christopher Simons had seen them and said, let's put them into the Weirdens. And so the people that they, the, the, the touring company people became the television stars. And then they went back out on tour. Yeah. And that was really interesting because you could see suddenly people, you know, realising, oh, you know, Mrs. Weirdens actually playing an English woman, a rich English woman in, 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 in the 19th century. Suddenly they were actually realising they were actually acting. Yeah. It wasn't, that's how she was for real. Yeah. Do you know? And that happens with Mary sometimes when, when, when we do 
various things, people go, oh, sure, Mary must be doing the country. And then when Mary doesn't do the country yeah. and John doesn't do the country, they go, oh, they're actually, they can act. They're real actors. And, and that's really interesting. And it's, it's, it's great to use iconic people like that because they bring with them an interest from the audience, but then you surprise the audience. Yeah. You know, like we turned one of the very sweet little characters in The Matchmaker into this woman with the hatchet now. <laughs> and it's like, we did that about a year ago. And it was like, because we were just kind of going, you know, we should work at that. We can do a little bit more with this. We're, we're getting a few laughs, but we could work at it. And now she just, she's just, character comes out of nowhere. And the audience go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, look at that. And it's gone again before you know where it is. But it is about having the courage after playing the show for a long, long time to say, I think we could do something with this and listen and work and do that. Finally then, as you look ahead, because you're showing no signs of slowing down anytime soon, even with 50 years under your belt. Now, to be fair, a very early start helps with that, but still. In terms of ambitions or desires or even like broad stroke things, are there still things you want to do? Are there new challenges you want to try? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why right. am I not surprised? Well, I've been working for about 10 years on doing The Valley of the Squinting Windows. Okay which is a book by Brinsley McNamara, which was written a very long time ago. And um, it was actually based on all the people in the town of Delvin. And when it was published, everybody in Delvin thought, oh, yay, he's written a book and it's all about Delvin. And as he started, they started to read the book. They read it on the steps of the courthouse. When they got to page 21, they went insane and they burnt the book and boycotted his father or tried to kill him and tried to destroy the family uh, to the point that it was huge um it was it was the book the book was vaguely successful well successful outside of <laughs> delvin <laughs> but in delvin like i asked mary mcavoy would she do it recently a couple of years ago she went no no they still burn us down they still burn us down it's it's a thing right. and the valley of the squinting windows it's 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 a title that's brilliant and yet when you're it's a vicious nasty piece of writing about small town ireland that's absolutely universal and I've done some workshops on it in Mullingar and we would like in the next couple of years to make it into a, a dangerous, dangerous piece about Irish life. Um, there's that. There's my eighth song cycle, The Songs of Swans of Cool, which is going to play in the Shemitsini home place shortly and in Mullingar Arts Centre this year. And we, we're going to do a recording of it now and then we have other plans to develop it further. Um, it... it, it it's it's i'm also writing an opera on the selfish giant for children Fantastic. which which i want to do with lots of venues and the idea is that we get lots of young kids to be the children in the opera in different towns yeah. and they all learn it and then we just bring the principals oh. to the towns and they, they all the kids come and be in the show because i think selfish giant's a great story absolutely and um i just love the idea of kind of having i i like the idea of of bringing lots of kids into it because i think i've worked a lot with children and I, th- I love the idea that we could actually get them young and interested in being in shows and interested in the theatre and come and their families could come and see them in it. And it brings more people into the theatre. But also, you know, it's quite surprising. It's a very sad, emotional story. Yeah. And I've written the end and I have, I, I've been looking for a lyricist to work with to do some of the other bits because it's kind of short on dialogue but it's got you know it's got great things like there's an area for frost to come in and rattle the chimney pots and snow to come in snow all over the place and spring to come in and sing so there's kind of good parts for 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 five or six professional singers and then like about 14 children wow so that's that's a long-term project that'll take another it'll take me two or three years to write that but I, I have two other things in development 
So it could be a bit longer. <laughs> my husband keeps saying to me, you, you, I want you to retire and relax. And I'm going, yeah! In due course, says you. Well, I think the thing is that I, I, I am what I sort of... I am partly my work. Uh, I, I, since I, I, I've been married, I do try to take as much time to kind of have a family life in a way differently to kind of previously, perhaps. Um, and there are other responsibilities like that. But I, I'm, I'm driven without choice to create. I don't have an option. I just recently moved my, moved my musical stuff from, from the room that I'm in now into another room, so it's actually a room because I need, I need, I need a space to actually work on music for the next two or three years. Um, and um, that's going to take up quite a bit of time. But I suppose the thing is that you don't do all of it every day. Like, I worked for 18 years on Inish Free, and maybe I played with it once a week or once every two or three weeks and then went, no, this isn't happening. And I just knew I had to leave it because as I got older, I've realised that you have to know when it's not a good time to force it. Mm-hmm. Yes. When, when to play through and when not. When to when. just kind of go, you know, yes, you could do this now and you could finish the song now, but it's not going to be the song you'll finish if you just leave it a little bit more, think about it and come back at it. I remember when I was doing Purgatory and we had this wonderful singer from Covent Garden, Nick Falwell, who said, I'm not leaving the theatre tonight till you finish the end. <clears throat> I said, oh, okay, fine. And I did. And then he turned to me after I'd done and said, it's very good. But if I hadn't hassled you, you'd have done a better end, wouldn't you? And I said, yes, I would have. And I've looked at it several times and I've tried to undo it. Yeah. And I can't. It's done. Right. It doesn't want to be exper- explored further. It's it's actually, I made serious choices about it and the choices were correct. Mm. I, I pared it down to the essential moment. Would I have written something bigger? Yes, possibly. Um, would it have been better? It might have been, it would have been longer. Would it have been better? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think I've learned, you know, at a certain time to kind of go, you know, I really should sit down and do this work tonight. And then kind of go, you know, you're not in the place to do that. You're going to be forcing it and you're going to regret it bitterly because you're going to write a load of things down and then be really sorry that you have to cut them up tomorrow and go, that's not working. Yeah. I remember Frank Dunlop, who ran the Edinburgh Festival, when we were doing Torchlight and Laser Beams, coming to see us because it was a big hit. Everybody knew it was going to be a big hit. This is like Christopher Nolan's won the Whitbird Prize. It's a big thing. And it was an extraordinary experience convincing a pile of actors to come and take the risks that they had to do to learn to speak to a paraplegic child, really, yeah. um, that's disabled, and actually to communicate with him and understand that he really had a very valid, lively, active brain and a very dirty mind. <laughs> um, and he was wonderful. And I remember Frank said to us at the end of the dress rehearsal on the Saturday in the rehearsal room, it's absolutely wonderful and you need to make a whole pile of cuts in it and you need to cut all the things you like. Wow. That's a hell of a note to get. <laughs> He was right. And I remember walking down the road on the way to the rehearsals in the Gaiety, realising that we had to do a tech at 12 or 1 o'clock. And once we teched it, yeah. that was it. Yeah. There was going to be no messing. It was going to have a lot of cues. It was very technical. And there was people diving into water tanks and people coming out of the floor and scenery moving and stuff coming out of the ceiling and people coming out of chairs on the ceiling and all sorts of things. And once it was done... There was going to be no going back. Mm. And I remember going into the bar at half past ten and saying, Frank loves Act One, but we have to rewrite Act Two now. 
<laughs> and we had made the show in sections, so it wasn't quite as dreadful as that sounds. Because Act 2 was much more of a, a kind of a state of consciousness rather than a long narrative. It got to a narrative at the end, but really it was more about consciousness. And I remember we all sat down together. Everybody was in the same place. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody knew what we needed to do. They didn't know what it was exactly, but they knew things had to be done. And nobody complained and everybody just got on with it. And we had the assistant director, which was Doreen McCann, Frank McCann's, Thomas McCann's daughter in one of the windows in Act 2 with the sections. So when people got a bit lost, if they did, they could go, where am I? And she'd go, it's section five and this is how it starts. And once we ever knew what the start was, sure. they knew what the section was. But that was like opening a show in the gaiety, which we were rewriting the day we were actually kind of, the day before we were doing it, <laughs> because it needed it. And nobody went, oh, I'm not doing that. I've got to go on and do my show. They knew it had to happen. And they'd come on this particularly weird and strange and dangerous and exciting journey. And they were going to go to the end of that journey with us all. It wasn't a case of like, there's a scene or a queenie. And I had some, you know, I had Clive Gerrish in the show. He could have said, no, I'm not doing that. But Clive just turned around like everybody else and got down to it. And it did. And he was extraordinary. He was amazing. He's an amazing actor. I tried to get him to do a show a couple of years ago. I said, no, I've retired. I'm not doing any more stage things. I went, oh, for Clive, I'd love you to come and do a show. And, and you know, it's it's like, it's, 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 it's why I kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at doing something in the UK with some, you know, potentially difficult but experienced people. It's because they will they will give so much yeah. that's beyond what we can write on the page. Yeah, the additional... And dust. they love playing. Mm. They are people who are movie stars and they are people who are theatre stars. And what's great about them is they love being in shows. They love that moment of going out there and being nervous and it happening and that interaction with the audience and the dialogue with each other and playing with friends and making a show together because the making a show together is so important. Yeah. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to sit down and chat to you again. On the record now, let me say a massive thank you from the bottom of my heart because literally without you, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> the, man who, the man who inflicted me on Irish theatre. No. So it's a, a privilege and a pleasure to sit and chat with you. Thank you so much again, Michael. A pleasure. Thank you, Angus. So there you have it, the fantastic Michael Scott. Such a great chance for me to catch up with Michael again. Really enjoyed spending the time with him. So great to hear him talk about his life and his career. And it's amazing to me to hear the way he talks about stuff, particularly things like the primacy of the audience and putting the audience experience at the centre of everything, which is so fundamental to me in how I go about creating work for the theatre now. And it's amazing to think that here we are 21 years on after he gave me that first chance with so much still in common. He's a man I have so much love in my heart for. I think he's a fantastic director. I think he's a fantastic human and I am so delighted to have had him on the podcast. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of all the theatrical goings on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre they have the Unmanageable Sisters with some incredible performances from so many incredible women there. you got, you know, the likes of Karen Ardoff, Marion O'Dwyer, uh, Rhino O'Grady being spectacular in that show. There's some really, really excellent performances going on there. Um, at the Gate Theatre they still have Look Back in Anger and also Late at the Gate with Emma Kirwan. Do please check the listings on that if you're looking to go and see Kirwan work as magic because I know they're doing funny stuff around St. Patrick's Day. So double check to make sure that that's going as per plan. At the Gaiety Theatre, they have Thriller Live, and that is followed by Art coming on tour. Um, at the Mermaid Theatre out in Bray, where we will be being, where we, oh, easy for me to say, where we'll be bringing the good father in due course. Uh, they have Frank McGuinness as someone who will watch over me. 
Um, at Theatre Upstairs coming very soon is Lyrics with the brilliant Danny Galligan and Tom Moran. Uh, the new theatre in Temple Bar has Sally Denver Matthews written by and starring Gilly O'Shea. At Smock Alley they have Diary of a Martian Beekeeper and Darman the Fuller and that'll be followed by Daddy Longlegs. Uh, at the Complex they have This Is Pop Baby with their incredible Where We Live festival. So many amazing events and shows and nights out happening as part of that mini festival. Well worth checking out. I had the privilege of going to see the wonderful Peter Daly work his magic the other night and thoroughly enjoyed it. Do please get a chance to check that out if at all possible. At the Viking Theatre out in Clontarf we have the last few performances of Holy Mary directed by the brilliant Aoife Spillane Hinks and that'll be followed by Victor's Dung. Uh, out Southside to the Dolman Theatre where we'll also be bringing the good father. Uh, it is Goodnight Delia and that will be followed by Love in the Wild. Uh, Bewley's has a returning show in a bag um, which is My Left Nut and at the Project Arts Centre, it's State of Exception, a brand new dance piece from the brilliant Catherine Young. Catherine is someone who I know very well. We did the next stage together a number of years ago and uh, we've collaborated together in the past. She's a phenomenal dance artist and that is well worth a roll of the dice on if you get the chance. Um, heading south to the Everyman in Cork, they have Druid's touring production of Waiting for Godot, which is exceptional. You don't need me to tell you that. Um, out west in Galway at the Town Hall, it's Grief is the Thing with Feathers, starring the brilliant Killian Murphy. Um, heading down to Limerick uh, Punt is at the Bell Table and up north in Lyric in Belfast they have the brilliant Nulas and also we'll walk hand in hand so that's us that's episode 19 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week <laughs> <laughs>